Our scripture this morning comes from Nehemiah 5. And so read along with me. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we're mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And even more who said, we've borrowed our money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we're forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it's not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcries in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You're exacting interest, each from his brother. Then I held a great assembly against them and said, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and couldn't find a word to say. So I said, the thing that, you're no, that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let's abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. Then they said... We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So he may be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, that's 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the, food, ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I didn't do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, And we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, beside those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on his people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm uh, Howard Brown, the pastor here at Christ Central Church. And growing up, I remember when uh, I would act greedy in my house or I would act like something belonged to me. In the presence of my mom, she would always remind me, boy... This is the cleaned up version, just so you know. (laughs) For those of you who know this saying, you don't have pot to pee in, neither window to throw it out of. 
In other words, don't act like you own anything around here. Don't act greedy about anything. Sometimes I have to remind my own boys when they ask for something, and then if I say no at the store or something like that, they'll be like, Daddy, but why? Like they, like they deserve it. And I'm like, well, if we were to take how much rent you owe me, how much free food you're getting around here. It's funny how the people who don't pay the bills have so much to say. But you don't have pot to pee in, neither window to throw it out of. In other words, you're so poor, you can't take care of and, and handle your most basic and lowest needs. Let me take it further. The mess you make and made financially or find yourself financially in, you have to live with it because you don't have the wherewithal to deal with it. Financially, you jammed, trapped, jaded, in the ringer, in the wash, skidding and rowing, broke and caught in the loop. The scriptures eloquently tell us that as believers, we are in this thing together because we have one faith, one Lord, and one baptism. Well, as we look at, Nehemiah, at what Nehemiah teaches here, that, that believers tie to each other when it comes to, to finances, to money, that, that we may not be, be the ones to blame for each other's misspending, overspending, uh, for the mess, the waste, the overindulgence, or oversaving insecurity, financial greed, and hoarding you put in the pot. We are all responsible to help, to like one family in one house, finding ways, finding the window, if you will, to rid ourselves of the way sin and a financially evil world has had its way with each other. And this chapter of Nehemiah teaches and calls us to a number of things, but I'm going to concentrate on three that I believe will be helpful to us today. First, that we must work to live economically responsible lives. Secondly, that we must be gift givers. And finally, we must get financial, financial counseling. So here is what is going on in our passage. God's people have, have come from neighboring towns to, to help rebuild and repair the wall around the holy city of Jerusalem. And these men have been working on the wall. And first, apparently, a famine has hit, causing a rise in the price of food and grain. And then, because these men are working on the wall, they are away from the general care and oversight of their own land back home, and that has suffered as a result. And you see this as it is the wives left behind to watch over things have joined in to complain about the economic situation. And here is the problem. Folks' families are starting to go hungry. And instead of the village leaders and nobles, that's the rich and influential helping in this situation, they actually take advantage of it. And, and like pawn star owners, they, they lease, they, they take temporary possession of the land of those who are struggling and need a loan on it to buy grain. Unable to use the land they leased and pawned for income, the poor end up struggling um, and, and have to sell their sons and daughters into slavery to the nobles and leaders to help pay off the loan amount on the land that they had leased and pawned out. Like all economic messes, these families end up upside down because 
First, they can't get money and food from the land because they pawned it. And then they can't get help working the land that they have left because the Bible tells us that some of them had even pawned their, I mean, uh, sold their own sons in the slavery, meaning primary workers and new landowners. And get this, the taxes on that land did not stop just because the land was pawned or leased out. They had to pay taxes on it while someone else actually made tax-free money from it. All the while, many of their husbands are away in Jerusalem doing the Lord's work on the wall. So Nehemiah, the leader of this wall-building campaign, gets an earful. An earful about this financial mess going on with and to God's people, kept alive by those who are vowed to be their brothers and sisters. Look at the complaint in verse 5. And then the charge of Nehemiah to the nobles in verses from to the nobles and leaders in verses 6 through 8. It says this, Now our flesh is as the flesh. These are the people who are feeling oppressed and, and in financial struggle. It is the flesh of our brothers, our children, is their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. And so Nehemiah said, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our brothers, Jewish brothers who... um, Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. Now, back then, the the religious and economic and the government uh, for Israel was all tied together. They loaned and borrowed and leased from each other. How they did their money, therefore, affected each other because they were spiritually linked by God as God's people. And so how they handled their personal lives, finances included, affected the whole group. So the Bible tells us that Nehemiah goes off on the nobles, the rich, the local leaders for not recognizing or ignoring or not caring how their personal economic philosophies and finances had created havoc and hardship on their brothers and sisters. But the nobles, uh, they weren't all bad because he also says in verse 8 that that it was good that they bought their indebted to the world, brothers and sisters, out of slavery. There's a time when the Israelites were in slavery to other countries around them. And the rich and the nobles and the leaders made sure that they were bought out of that indebted slavery as well. Which means that it was their responsibility as leaders as brothers and sisters, to those who are indebted, to help them get out of that debt, to help them get out of that financial crisis they were in. But best picture of the call to responsible financial living doesn't come from Nehemiah or the nobles and officials, but the complainants, right? Look at verse 1 through 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and daughters we are many, So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses, get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we are borrowed money from the king's taxes 
for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. It was those who said, help, who had the outcry. And what the oppressor's saying is that for us to be trapped and exploited and keep living this way financially in debt and upside down and having to sell our children in slavery while our husbands are burning the candle at both ends is financially irresponsible. And though we don't have the power necessarily in and of ourselves to change it, we will continue to live like this. Like like this. It's wrong for our brothers and sisters in this community of faith to live like the ungodly do. They are sounding the alarm on the financial situation they find themselves in. And bottom line, where it comes from, whether it comes from Nehemiah or the poor folk here, those who are spiritually tied to each other are called to sound the alarm. Like the oppressed here, you asking for and bringing to light how this thing is working in the wrong way and, and seeking to get community right about how they're handling their finances and how that is killing them. They want a stop to bad spending and a stop to economic philosophies and for ignorance to be done with and light to be shined on the, on the dark places financially. Those who are spiritually tied to each other. By their being believers, especially as a part of the same town or tribe or church, we must seek to live economically responsible, it's responsible in our personal lives. How we handle our business and finances, even if we're not doing business and financial stuff with each other, because like them, your finances affect the way and the why and the how you're able to care for the overall faith community we are all a part of. And like Israel, when we don't handle our money and our debts properly, if we don't repent for them, if we don't give an outcry for the way we're in debt or the issues we're having or the way we're spending our money, we can enslave and keep each other enslaved because there's not enough money in the mercy account or, or you're too busy or uh, what making money to, to pay for all the stuff you bought to be a part of the community. You're too busy making money to pray and, and with each other, know each other and share coffee or lunch with each other to be with each other in spiritually, emotionally, and socially redeeming ways. You and I can't just spend and make money and build wealth and go into debt or live in poverty and not think about it or to be ignorant about finances in the light of how it affects each other, but also for the fact that we must glorify God in how we do our finances. The mortgaging and leasing and enslaving they were talking about in the first few verses of this chapter are, as I explained earlier, they are temporary arrangements to get money for grain because the land and the people belong to God. That's why they were temporary. And the land and its resources were theirs only because this is a story of Israel, because God had battled against their enemies and supernaturally worked to give them the land they had. So part of the Israeli law was after a cycle of 50 years of whether it was enslavement, which was not like American slavery, but more like working off a debt, everything and everyone that was borrowed and loaned were returned and debt forgiven. That's called the Jubilee year. Why? To help them remember and know 
and live like that all they held and owned and were, whether they're rich or poor, ultimately belonged to God. So with that in mind, look with me at verse 9 through 13. So I said, to the, said this thing that you, the nobles and the officials are doing is not good. Are you not to walk in the fear of our God? To prevent the taunts of the nations, uh, uh, taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them. This very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that, have, that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they promised. And I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house, from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they promised. They vowed to handle their finances with justice and mercy before God. Recognizing God was the auditor and author of all they had and didn't have. But get this. And that, is, and that they, and that what they had was on lease from God. That we as God's people are renting and leasing and are his workers and slaves. God is the true, is truly the only owner of anything, anyone, and everything, and everyone. And so Nehemiah's call to them and us was a call to repent and change how they were spending and doing God's money. God's resources and take account and responsibility and action and attention to their finances. This is important. If you are God's and you are spending God's money, you should know and then repent and confirm as good where is it going and why. And that may require something I hate doing and I never do myself, and I need to repent. What's going on? Do you know where your money is going? Do you know where God's money is going? We are simply leasing what God has given. And that's a very hard concept for Americans, because you know what? We believe in ownership. Land ownership. We believe in, in, in making money and taking loans off of what we own. But here, believers, there is a new kingdom perspective. And here is a kingdom perspective. Everything you have belongs to God and you are just leasing it because this is not even your final home. Some of us are leasing more. So there's greater responsibility. Some of us are leasing less, so we have to be careful. It means that we as a church, ready? We must deprivatize our finances. What do I mean by that? I'm not talking about communism. Don't get crazy. 
This sermon's not named one pot so I can put a pot and y'all put all your bank account numbers in. And I'm in charge of figuring out how it goes. That's not what I'm talking about. We almost can talk about everything except how we spend our money. It's often off limits. It's off limits to those who are doing well. (laughs) It's not off limits to those who are struggling. How can that be? How can it be just because you're financially doing well that you have no accountability for how you spend your money? Why is it private when, it's, when you're okay? Why is it only public if you're struggling and the oppressed and the poor among us and then everyone looks at your finances, what's going on? Are you doing this right? Are you doing that right? How much debt do you have? And I understand when you come and get help, you have to be held accountable, but we don't hold each other accountable for the stuff we do have. It wasn't the poor that were held accountable. It was those who were doing okay. And in some sense, Nehemiah deprivatized it, right? He he took it out and he said, you know what? You don't have a right just because you're doing so well to determine how you spend God's money outside of an accountable group in the community. Woo, we don't like that one. Because if I'm doing well, that means I don't need any help. See, in our country, we believe that if we're doing well, or well enough, and we got savings, and we don't have a lot of debt, we're, we're driving something nice, or we're driving something reasonable, that somehow our hearts are right. And that can't be true fully, or else you would already be in heaven. You would already be there. There is a sanctifying reality for those who are doing well. Why? Because there's still too much poverty in our community. No, it's their fault that they're in poverty. It's their fault. I'm not talking about fault. The Scripture is not laming fault on anybody. The Scripture is calling us to a higher kingdom responsibility. And this is what we do in our country, and now it's how we do church. And we cannot or not called to do church like that. When we look around this community and we see people who are struggling and in poverty, if we understand how to do money and spend money and how to fix it and how to do investments and how to do that, then some of us need to humble ourselves and get the help from those who know how to do it well. And some of us need, who know how to do it well and have it well need to humble ourselves and recognize that we are our brother and sister's keepers in this matter. So we have things. I was at the um, deacons meeting the other day, and Julie Goff came. She's like our resident financial Dave Ramsey around here. Julie is really good at that stuff. And when she talks, I get convicted. When she talks, I'm like, man, I, I wish I could grow up and be like her. I mean, she knows how to put some stuff together. She had all the paperwork and budget sheets. Oh, my gosh, I hate that stuff. Wow, it's like raking leaves and going to the DMV. It just, for me. I did both this week, by the way. That's why it's fresh. Raking wet leaves 
and going to the DMV the last day of the month. Woo! So we have people, we're a community committed to help you and it can only help you so you can have and hold more for the glory of God, but also to give more, to give, because giving is a cornerstone of the gospel. And this is another reason Nehemiah was so bent out of shape because these leaders and nobles among God's people were actually becoming defined by their ability to loan and make money instead of their desire and ability to give. Let me make a statement. God's people give, they don't loan. Now, I'm not saying you can't give a personal loan. That's fine. I understand that. It's about the heart. God didn't loan us anything. God gave. Our Lord gives, and we as his people give. And we're going to talk about what that means. Now, now, now. Not that you, again, can't get personal loans between each other, but that loan should never be done for either self-interest or control. All right? That's what giving means. Look at verse 7 and 8 with me. Nehemiah says, I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and, and said to them, we are as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold in the nations. That's good. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and they could not find a word to say. Nehemiah brought charges against them, maybe some for breaking what I would describe as the actual letter or commandment of the law itself because it was illegal in Israeli law at the time to charge interest. If someone leased you their land, you gave them money for that lease, sure, you could get money and benefit from what that land yielded during your lease, but you couldn't charge interest on the loan itself. But there's more to it than percentages here. This is about the spirit, the heart that these nobles and officials had behind their giving. Nehemiah keeps emphasizing that they are brothers and sisters to their clients and, and then accuses them of slave trading their own people. He is saying what you are doing, exacting interest, is not good. And what do we mean by interest here? Giving to God and God's people with hopes that you can gain glory or get what you want personally out of it. Remember, they are exploiting the work of the wall. They are exploiting the work of God and the famine in the world to make money. That is getting what they want out of God's work. What am I saying? We should give to God's church and God's people free of personal interest and control. Now, that's easier said than done. Let's start with a simple one. When you give to God and God's work and God's church or give to somebody or do a little Salvation Army thing when you go into the store, God is not required to double your money. I don't care what any pastor says, just, just drop that. That's personal interest. God don't do interest. He's not required to bless you according to your and the world set interest point or where, when you think, whether you think if you give your money, God's going to bless you with a car or a house or for what you always wanted or a cruise or a man or a woman or children or something like that. That's, that's your interest point, right? You're, God, you, you might give 
and experience more suffering and no less struggle. Or it may open the door for the Lord to ask for more, right? But your return is given over to his interest. This is what giving is all about. Your interest, not my interest. Interest free giving. But let's make it harder here. Because we have been asking you to give to help meet budget going towards the end of the year and, and close the deficit gap we have at Christ Central Church. Let's just keep it real. And next year, we are considering doing some redemptive giving where we are going to raise some extra money to accomplish some of the mission and ministry goals that he has set for Christ Central Church. That's coming down the pipe. But let me tell you what that means. It's so exciting. It's so exciting. Interest-free money and resources for God. That means investment in God's stock with no interest to you. Isn't that great? No return at the percentage or interest point that you want. Right? It's so awesome. That means giving your time, talents, and resources in a way that is not, okay, this is hard, not about getting Christ Central Church's leadership to do what you want in the way you want it, regardless of how much you give. Your interest in giving should be tied to the mission and vision God has given the church and the community that you have vowed to be a part of, and not about getting the nursery you always wanted or the seat you always wanted or something for my kids to do, where there's a greater choice of people to choose from, to marry or date, or the kind of place you'll be less ashamed to bring your type of friends to, like this is some type of country club or club period, or making sure we can buy another white guy to balance out the color up front and leadership, or hiring, keeping the best music and musicians in town to have the the most banging worship, or, or, or so you, because you're a heavy hitter, be able to indirectly enslave the church to do what you and your giving block wants, or that it doesn't fit in your financial personal plans. You cannot give with a mind and a heart to control the staff, the pastor, the direction of things with personal interests, not finding out what is best for the whole and honor to God. You cannot give with self-interest. That's exacting interest. I'll give if I get what I want. I'll give if this church turns out the way I want. Who said you could charge interest on your gifts to God? So Nehemiah asked the nobles this, and they're giving with interest. Do you not fear God? You only fear yourself. You don't fear God, what God might want. You can't tell God what he's doing with his money and his church and his mission. Now understand, there is nothing wrong with wanting or being aware or having a heart for what is needed for ministry. And also, it is, a tr it is true that much of what I mention and you may want or desire are financial goals and missions that the Lord has set on the hearts of you leaders, but your leaders as well. We must be givers, not takers and warners first. God is asking for gifts, not interest-bearing and dependent loans that in turn will hamstring and enslave God's people who don't have as much from being and doing what God would have them to do to, being, to, bring, uh, to, to be able to bring their gifts to them. Your interest-based giving may actually be holding up God's work. Self-interest must be confronted and charged. 
And like verse 8, it produces a silent humility. Hearts and minds and lives that are waiting for God to tell us and direct us must, must follow. But also, guess what? Liberation, right? Liberation to give free from self-interest, but commitment to God's people and God's work. And that is what's going on in verse 10 through 13. I, I like that Nehemiah is including himself in it. Do you know what the commitment to give interest-free produced? Praise! Thanks! It actually renewed the relationship people have with their God and his mission that self-interest had taken away. I remember when I was in college. We didn't have nothing. Or in seminary when I didn't have nothing. You know, no real, no baggage. You know, yes, thin baggage stuff, but not like baggage like, be careful. I'm going to be careful how I say baggage, right? House, kids, all that kind of stuff. Soccer. TV. Schedules. Man, we were ready to do anything for Jesus. You remember them days? I'm looking at some of y'all because some of y'all like me. When you were young and in love with the Lord, man, you're ready to go to Africa and back, but take a quick trip to Haiti first and then come back to make a difference for Jesus. We're going to move in the city. We're going to take the hill. Yay, Jesus, we were. We didn't care where the money went. We didn't care about no money. We were on fire for the Lord. We wanted people to come to faith in Jesus, man. And then all of a sudden, Self-interest became most important. When we had fewer self-interest, we were wild and crazy and hearts ablaze for God. Now, we have more to protect and play and go for, gain for us, our wives, our careers, our children. We needed and wanted more self-interest and control over our stuff. And you know what that has done to many of us who used to be missionaries for the Lord? It's doused and lessened the flame on our relationship with God in the world because we had too much. We have too much self-interest and need for control in our giving and offering and doing. And it's relegated God to a loan officer, and we are the underwriters. And that took the fire out of our mission. Man, my relationship with the Lord used to be so on fire back then because you weren't hoarding things. You didn't have so much to protect. And in this country, it goes backwards. Oh, you're on fire for the Lord. And then you go, Lord, please bless us. And you get married, and you get kids, and you get the house, and you get the debt, and you get all this stuff. And then it's like, Lord, please don't bother me for anything. And you wonder why. Why, don't, why is it so hard to worship the Lord when you have so much stuff? Because you're steeped in self-interest. 
in control over your stuff, and it's so much there that the only, I mean, the only thing that's going to liberate you to say, praise the Lord, is repentance for the way we've hoarded ourselves and, and, and stopped our brothers and sisters in the ministry from being blessed, and come to God with open hearts saying, Lord, please liberate us. And all of a sudden, I promise, a fire and a flame will blaze anew in your relationship because God's interest will be driving the thing. We must become interest-free givers again, whose only interest is the kingdom and only hope is what God can and will do. You know what? (laughs) I don't care if you only have one pot and one window and nothing else. I don't care if you have a lot. Whatever you have or have self-interest over, your family included, your kids included, your wife included, your jobs included, the relationships in your neighborhood and community that somehow give something back to you, declare a jubilee over it. It's yours again, Lord. Take it back. I don't want to own it. You give me what you called me to take responsible for and what you've leased to me, but I declare a jubilee on all that I have. It's a very dangerous prayer. Because God might want it. You might end up becoming that crazy family that's committed to the Lord and scheduled looks jumbled. And you look funny to your friends. What y'all got going on? We got a lot. Man, that's really, that's bad. That's bad for the kids and the family. What's, what's wrong with y'all? Hey, we living for the kingdom. You ever seen people really living for the kingdom? They just not well put together at all. I'm a pastor. I've seen pastors. I've become, I'm sorry, to some degree I've become sort of more professional than I should and have order and calendar and some of that stuff good and redeeming to make sure I care for you and all that. But people who really love Jesus and wow for the kingdom, they show up. They don't look iron. They don't look together. They look ragged and they're about Jesus. They just kind of get in there and the Lord makes it work. I've seen it and I'm like, I don't want to be like those people. Because it looks like they have no self-interest. It looks like they might not be living and giving towards themselves, but to others. But somehow Christianity has said, this thing is transformed to make sure you get everything you want. And Nehemiah is confronting the nobles and the leaders about this very same thing. Stop it. Let me say this. At the end of this passage, Nehemiah says this. Nehemiah decides he won't take the tax money from the people. He takes the tax money to, to pay for his food and his, his government outings because he thinks it will be a burden on the people. And he says this in verse 19. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. I don't want you to get it twisted. He's not saying, God, I did good, so you better do good by me. 
He is saying, exchange what I have done, sacrificed and given, and use it for some heavenly collateral that will be good for your kingdom and your people and your glory. You know what? The exchange rate for what you have given and will give self-interest-free is ridiculously high. Giving, tithing, sacrificial giving might mean negative interest for you. Will you give and offer and work and slave and serve God and feel like you have little or nothing to show for it? You're still driving the same car, still struggling financially. Church still hasn't given, gotten over the hump with its building, its ministries, its pastoral staffing. Heck, at Christ Central Church, it's coming up on 10 years, and it feels, I said feels, like the financial building struggles never end. Year after year, God decides to barely keep us afloat and some of your personal finances alive. Year after year, the same mercy cases and needs and percentage of people who need help paying bills and who are out of work. The exchange rate's way too high. What do we do with that? Because everything in our world says if you invest, if you sacrifice, if you give, you should get a return. So what do we do with backwards and upside-down interest rates that God offers us who give and feel burned out and just tired of giving and investing in something that is so slow and hard and discouraged? Well, we don't try to fix or blame this person or that thing or try to get more rich types of people. I mean, we went through this. As a church, we went through it. Well, what do we need to do to get those kinds of people? We had the discussion. Well, you know... If we keep going, we're not going to get the sustainable family units we need. What? I still think it. Because the exchange rate for doing church is too high when you do it the way, you know, with giving and all that kind of stuff and lack of self-interest. Man, we could grow. We could have the money if we change some of the ways and, you know, give the people who have the money what they want. Or the people still out there investing. You know, it's like investing. You know, McDonald's does certain things for the people who are going to pay the money to get it, right? It's an upside-down kingdom. What do we do? I remember going, we, we give and give into the financial counselor to give us a heavily exchange rate that will give us grace and faith to continue on. I remember going to our financial counselor and his office is in South Park. And I remember going in there thinking, what me and Kelly doing in this place? We ain't them kind of people looking like the people on the commercials at the football game. You know, the Merrill Lynch commercials? We see a little older, mature-looking family. Look like he made some money. What are you going to do with your investments? Well, you can do whatever you want. Would you like to retire? Would you like to go on a vacation? And they buy like a, like a motor home and they go to, I'm like, we, we ain't supposed to be up in this bad boy. That ain't us. We don't show up in those commercials during the football game. That ain't me and her. I'm going to think, what, what are we going to do? But it was amazing, right? What this kind of, of counseling did and, and, and made it work. Let me tell you, the Lord takes what we have given like he did Nehemiah, great and small, and he invests it into his kingdom and takes it and transforms it and exchanges it into grace, faith, and hope. Now, here's the rub. You may not live 
This is going to sound bad. You may not live to see it completely mature and blossom. And it might come up apples instead of oranges. But God will remember it, accept it for his glory and our grace, and take it in us as an investment in a kingdom that has never and will never fail for the good of his people and the glory of God. We need somebody like Nehemiah, right, to confront us, to encourage us, and then to personally go and make a difference, to personally say, I did it, I gave, I sacrificed, and the Lord has provided that for us in Jesus, right? Jesus is our Nehemiah. And financial heart counsel, and our hearts cannot get there. And our giving and financial help soon to follow unless we humble ourselves before him and repent, unless we cry out to him like the poor did for financial brokenness. And that only happens as possible as Jesus first gave interest-free repentance and righteousness to us and so we could experience God's jubilee. Remember that Nehemiah's governor could have taxed the people to gain what was rightfully his. He didn't execute his rights so that his people could be free to serve and give and so as he prays at the end that his sacrifice would be used and seen by God to bring change to the hearts and lives and financial health of his people. Let me read something to you. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Philippians second chapter. Listen to this. So if there's any encouragement in Christ... Any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now hear hear this now. Let each of you look not only to his own interest but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Lord to the glory of God the Father. The mission and ministry of Jesus Christ of God's people and the church that Jesus is Lord. This is why we give. This is what your money equals. This is what our financial health means. It doesn't mean that we get more. It doesn't mean that we get to go to all the nice places we want. It doesn't mean we get to buy what we want. It means this, that as we humble ourselves and look not to each other's interests, that people who are your brothers and sisters and even you yourself can enjoy the grace of the Lord Jesus like you cannot experience it otherwise. That people can come and say, Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. And there is no other place you can invest and sacrifice and give that comes back with that kind of interest.
Jesus is the window for our pot of financial mess. He's the only way out. He's the only one in, only way in for our hearts and our money and our finances and our thinking and our sacrifices to make sense.